This is Hemant, and you're listening to the Friendly Atheist Podcast. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash friendlyatheistpodcast, and $5 a month will get you access to ad-free episodes of the show. Jessica's out of town this week, so I'm going solo, but I have an interview with someone you're really going to want to listen to. Dr. Randall Balmer holds the John Phillips Chair in Religion at Dartmouth College, Dartmouth's oldest endowed professorship. He previously taught as Professor of American Religious History at Columbia University for 27 years. In his scholarship, Dr. Balmer focuses on Christianity's interrelationships with American politics. He's written several books on the topic, and his latest is Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. We spoke about the real origins of the religious right, whether white evangelicals accept their own history, and if Democrats should use churches to their political advantage. Randall, thank you so much for chatting with me here. So I'll just get right into this. For all the culture war battles fought by the religious right, abortion always seems to be at the top of the list. But in a fairly viral 2014 Politico piece and in your new book, you write that this is part of their own mythology, this idea that they were inspired by Roe v. Wade to fight against abortion. But the reality, you said, is that that's actually a pivot. It was kind of a strategic move in a sense So what was the actual motivator for, like, the modern version of the religious right? Sure. Uh, That's that's a great question. And uh, I think I probably, along with everybody else, uh, bought into what I now call the abortion myth. That is the fiction that evangelicals became politically active in the 1970s in direct response to the Roe v. Wade decision of 1973. And, you know, this uh, this has become, you know, sort of accepted wisdom, (laughs) Uh, for, uh, for a lot of people, and in part because uh, the leaders of this movement kept hammering away and said, this is how it started. Well, uh, as I began to do research in the matter, I found out that that was not the case. And uh, as you suggest, it was it was something very different. But if you don't mind, I'll just uh, give you a little bit of evidence for uh, demolishing what I call the abortion myth. Uh, yeah, that sounds may, great. May I do that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, the abortion myth is the fiction that evangelicals became politically mobilized in the 1970s in response to Roe v. Wade. Uh, What I found instead is that uh, I'll just give a little bit of the evidence. There's a whole lot. That's what the book is all about. Uh, One bit of evidence is that in 1968, Christianity Today, which is really the flagship magazine of evangelicalism, together with another evangelical group called the Christian Medical Society, conducted a conference over several days, inviting some of the heavyweight theologians from the evangelical world to discuss specifically uh, the, 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 the morality of abortion. And after several days of uh, proceedings, they issued a statement saying, eh, we really can't decide whether or not abortion should, is morally wrong, but we think it should be allowed. Two successive editors of that magazine, uh, the founding editor and his successor, also issued equivocal statements on abortion. The Southern Baptist Convention, not exactly known as a redoubt of liberalism, in 1971 uh, passed a resolution meeting in St. Louis, Missouri, calling for the legalization of abortion, which they reaffirmed in 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade, and again in 1976. Uh, when the the ruling was handed down on uh, January January twenty second, nineteen seventy three. 
W.A. Criswell, one of the most famous evangelicals of the uh, 20th century, issued a statement applauding the Roe v. Wade decision. And finally, again, I could go on and on, but um, Jerry Falwell, by his own admission, did not preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978. That's more than five years after the Roe v. Wade decision. So all of this I call the abortion myth. This is the fiction that abortion was the motivating factor behind the mobilization of evangelicals in the 19th I have actually seen books written by famous Christian apologists published in the late 1970s, maybe early 80s, where, yes, they were talk. I'm, I'm not early 80s, but in the 70s, talking about abortion, but it wasn't as anti-abortion. That's exactly. not their stance. It was yeah. very much a, yeah, this is fine. And you could see in later editions of those books, <laughs> those, those passages were taken out of it. Okay. So that's the myth that they were always anti-abortion. Right. right. So what fueled that movement before that? Uh, well, uh, this is what I found fascinating. Again, uh, and I've done, you know, I spent more years researching this than I care to <laughs> care to count. But uh, what, what what really happened was that uh, the IRS, beginning in 1971, starts coming after evangelical schools, uh, principally Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina, but also other so-called segregation academies, that is, whites-only schools that were formed by churches, many of them, most of them perhaps, uh, in order to evade desegregation of public schools. And as these schools began to apply to the IRS for tax exemption, uh, Various groups of parents, including uh, principally a, a group of parents in Holmes County, Mississippi, said, you know, this isn't right. And so they filed suit. Again, I can go through all the details here, but just to give you the, the broader outlines of, of, the, of the narrative, uh, that uh, suit eventually came before the district court for the District of Columbia. And on June 30th, 1971, that court issued a ruling that said, in effect, any institution that engages in racial segregation or racial discrimination is not, by definition, a charitable institution, and therefore it has no claims on tax-exempt status. And as the IRS in the 1970s began enforcing that decision, which, by the way, was also supported by Richard Nixon, of all people, mm -hmm. uh, as the IRS began to, to enforce that uh, decision, that is what got the attention of people like Jerry Falwell, who had his own segregation academy in Lynchburg, Virginia, as well as, of course, uh, Bob Jones University and these other places. That was the motivation for evangelical political activism in the 1970s. had nothing to do with abortion. They wanted abortion to keep their whites-only schools, and they wanted tax-exempt status. They wanted to have their cake and eat it, too, when well, it came of to Of course, racism. yeah. And, 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 the, and the, the real... Um, uh, the real... Uh, I don't know, <laughs> chicanery behind this is that... Uh, Falwell, I mean, the, the mastermind behind this is Paul Weyrich, who's really the, the, the architect of the religious right. What he was able to do is to kind of twist that around to say, no, we're not defending racial segregation. We're defending religious freedom. Gene. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> this is what's going on right now with all the Hobby Lobby nonsense and things like that. We're defending our religious freedom failing to acknowledge that tax exemption is a form of public subsidy, right? Mm -hmm. 
tax-exempt organizations don't pay taxes. That, by definition, I mean that's that's right. that, that, that's uh, uh, that's axiomatic. And for taking it away, even for racial reasons, they're actually attacking your faith. Is what he's getting. That's at. what the you know, and that's very clever on their part to kind of twist that around. And you can see that this is the same rhetoric that's being used in the Hobby Lobby case and all these other, and now with a vaccine. Well, vaccine exemptions, yeah. (laughs) Religious freedom is really a cudgel for everything they want. It is. You're you're absolutely right. And I say this, by the way, uh, you know, I know this is an atheist group, and and I'm not an atheist. (laughs) I'm a person of faith. In fact, I'm an ordained uh, Episcopal priest, so I'm not saying this in in, uh, hostility to religion. But uh, it's it's very clear that these these folks are twisting this around to uh, uh, to uh, to their own advantage and and, and uh, to do all sorts of nefarious things. Now, one of the things, one of the reasons for that pivot, then one of the reasons he's why Rick and others are saying this is about religious freedom yeah. is because it's really hard to defend racism, the whites only segregation academies, things like that, and yet it seems like today the conservative Christians, religious right, whatever group you want to call that, they don't seem to have any problem rallying (laughs) behind, you know, uh, Trump bigotry or even uh, whether it's critical race theory or whatever you want to call it today. It seems like it's pretty easy to pin pigeonhole them into racist things. So like, it's not that they were ever pivoting away from racism. So like, I guess one of the questions is if it was so unpopular that they had to rebrand uh, to get away from we're defending segregation to something else, why does it seem, why does it feel like they really haven't changed at all? Because if the argument is it's too unpopular, we cannot get behind that, but they haven't gotten away from it. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I think the the difference is Trump. I mean, Trump is the one who's kind of, uh, in, in many ways, validated these uh, prejudices and, and allowed them uh, to flourish. And the other thing that I that I really picked up in the course of writing the book, and one of the reasons I did it was I was trying to explain to myself, for myself, how it is that 81% of white evangelicals, and again, the modifier white right. is very important, <laughs> right. white evangelicals supported Donald Trump. You know, this is a movement that's supposed to be about family values. I'm sorry, you can't make that. <laughs> you can't make that case. Right. That support for Donald Trump is 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 support for family values. You, you, you can't. You, there, there's no, there, there's no uh, convoluted logic that would allow you to to to, to justify that. And what. And so what I began to see, and I, I guess in many ways the project started, uh, although I've been working on the, the, the history of this for a long time, uh, the immediate project started as a way to answer that 81% question. And what I d- determined, first of all, is that the 2016 election and support for Donald Trump allowed the uh, the religious right people in this movement to circle back to the foundational principle behind the movement itself, which was, there's no pretty way to say it, a defense of racial segregation, racism, to put it in the in the plainest terms. But they would never acknowledge that. They no, would they never didn't. say that's no, the reason. Uh, they didn't until... Well, I mean, they acknowledged it at least tacitly by supporting Trump. Right, right. But what I also saw is, you know, what is the bridge between the origins of this movement in a defense of racism in the 1970s 
and Donald Trump in 2016. And again, this is a movement that brays about being for family values and all this stuff. And what I really saw, I think very clearly for the first time, I may have suspected it, but I saw very clearly that the bridge uh, uh, character here is Ronald Reagan. And I began to look a little bit more closely into Ronald Reagan's career. I mean, I remember his rise and his, um, his certainly his election and so forth. And, and, and being at the time uh, utterly dumbfounded that, that evangelicals themselves would, would turn their back on one of their own. Jimmy Carter is Jimmy a Carter, Southern yeah. Baptist Sunday school teacher, boarding on Christian, in, in favor of a divorce and remarried man who, as governor of California, had signed into law the most liberal abortion bill in the country. So I began to look a little bit more into Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan really began his political career in opposition to California's Rumford Fair Housing Act, which guaranteed equal access both in rental housing as well as in the purchase of, of, of real estate for you know for everyone, right? You know, colorblind sort of thing. Uh, he posed that. That's how he got started in politics. He was also an outspoken opponent of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Throughout his political campaigns, he frequently invoked the racially charged phrase, law and order. And nobody who remembers Reagan can forget his vile caricature of so-called welfare queens, women of color who supposedly live off the public dole in lives of luxury and so forth. He was never able to produce any of these <laughs> welfare right, things, but right. it didn't stop him from invoking, invoking them. And for me, the, the clincher, and, and, and this, I'm, I, I'm still, I still can't quite believe it, but I mean, it certainly happened. He opened his 1980 general election campaign for the presidency in, of all places, Philadelphia, Mississippi, at the Neshoba County Fair. This was the place where 16 summers earlier, members of the Ku Klux Klan, in collusion with the local sheriff's department, abducted, tortured, and murdered three civil rights workers. And Ronald Reagan, August 3rd, 1980, starts his general election campaign for the presidency in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And he was a master of symbolism. And yet, lest anyone miss his meaning, he declared on that occasion before this white audience, I believe in states' rights, which is the mm -hmm. age-old segregationist battle cry. So for me, Ronald Reagan is really the, the I mean, people talk about uh, Reagan at the time. I remember, and again, I, I found this in the course of my research. You know, he was a racist with a smile. <laughs> that is to say, right. his policies were not all that different from uh, Barry Goldwater, for example, who, of course, Reagan supported in 1964. But Graham, uh, but Goldwater always came back, came off as angry and as, as combative. And, Gra and and Reagan, I mean, that's, you know, that was part of his charm was that he was able to to say and, and, and support, uh, frankly, indefensible and indefensible policies. But uh, to do so in a kind of winsome way, in, uh, in, in a way that uh, Goldwater and others uh, did not. Not to change from that particular subject, but since we talk about the 81% of white evangelicals who voted for Trump in 2016, are you more surprised 
that so many of that particular group voted for Trump in 2016, even though he contradicts all of their stated values, or the fact that roughly the same number yeah. still voted for him in 2020. No, and in, in many ways, I'm still mystified by this because, you know, I, again, I grew up in this world. I'm happy to, 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 to acknowledge that. I'm not, I'm, 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 it's part of who I am. It's part of my DNA. And I, one of the things that my parents always, my father was an evangelical minister for 40 years, 40 plus years. And one of the things my parents always drilled into me was, you know, you never lie. You tell the truth. And, you know, the Bible says something about false witness. Uh, According to independent sources, I think the, the figure is in Trump's four years as president, he made 30,500, is it 73? Something like that. Something like that. It, it, you know, it's a, it's a big number. False yeah. and misleading statements. And to me, you know, I mean, that was the, for me, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm being very serious about that. You know, the, 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 the notion of being honest and truthful was one of the, one of the foundations of being a, a believer, of being a Christian. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, you know, Trump, I guess, lately said something to the effect that he had done more for Christianity than <laughs> Jesus, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, it's he just, didn't it's say he did good stuff. It's <laughs> yeah, it's just, right. I mean, and, and for, for evangelicals, I mean, I, I, I can't really understand, but I guess, you know, let's say we give him a pass for 19, for 2016, 81% of white evangelicals. Yeah. But to come back four years later after all they'd seen in the course of uh, Trump's presidency and, and still pull the lever for Donald Trump is just uh, uh, unconscionable in my job. I, I was surprised by that in part because I was hoping at least younger white evangelicals, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me, would uh, pivot away. But it seems like they're pretty much on board, less so, but yeah. they're still not as distanced as I thought they would be. I, I, exactly. But, I, you know, I think if, if there is any hope for the movement and any hope for the future of uh, evangelicalism, I think it probably will be with the younger generation because they're, they they see things a little bit differently. And, the, and one of the things is that they... Uh, you know, I think abortion is still important to a lot of them, frankly, but they don't see it as quite the central issue that uh, their their parents and their parents' generation did. Let me go back to Bob Jones and that segregation yeah. academy. Now, this place famously did not end their like no interracial dating rule until like 2000 when George right. W. Bush was campaigning. But like even that school's like, look, we screwed up. We're not doing that anymore. I feel like they've put out public statements to that effect, yeah, right. or at least you know we were we were wrong in our interpretation of the Bible. Um, but people like James Dobson, the people who were around when that pivot you talked about occurred, yeah. do they acknowledge the racist past of their own movement, no, or I- do they? Yeah, what, what's their take on it? No, I don't think they do. I mean, I, I think, and, and I also think that uh, I think some of them actually believe it. <laughs> they actually believe uh, their, the, the rhetoric that this movement has been spouting now for 40 years, that this is a movement that started in opposition to abortion. I think a lot of them actually do. I mean, Falwell made a statement uh, shortly before his death that suggested to me that either he was a, um, you know, a, 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 you know, Believe me, I don't care for Jerry Falwell, but um, mm-hmm. you know, either he was a, a, a an out and out sociopath, and I, I don't think he was. I mean, I 
you know, there's a lot not to like about Jerry Falwell, but um, the statements seem to suggest that he actually believed <laughs> that uh, abortion is what got him into the movement. Um, uh, so <laughs> I mean, like he, he was he, around. He, <laughs> but and what I find so fascinating, I mentioned earlier that he didn't preach his first anti-abortion sermon until February of 1978. And he writes uh, in one of his memoirs, he writes about uh, his uh, his disbelief when the Roe v. Wade decision was handed down. Uh, Although he's writing this 14 years after the <laughs> after the fact, so I think there's probably it's a, a very selective memory right there. Memory. Um, because it was, it seems today, okay. They shifted from out and out racism to we're firmly on this abortion train. I've seen them do similar pivots. I know you have too when it comes to fighting LGBTQ rights, things like that. Yeah. What do you think? I mean. It seems then theoretically possible to drive white evangelicals to get them to rally behind a different cause that would actually, I don't know, benefit the world, benefit the country. Like I could plausibly see a way to say white evangelicals are trying to protect the environment when it comes to climate change because yeah. this is the planet God yeah. gave us oh, yeah. or, or make an argument for equal rights for everyone. Yeah. I mean, within their context, it seems plausible. Yeah. It just doesn't seem likely. I'm wondering, do you think there is a cause you that white evangelicals could rally behind that actually could garner the support of other groups of people? Because right now it seems like everything they do is in opposition to, to the progressive movement by and large. Right. Um is there a way to get them to rally behind one of those other big central rallying? It's a really uh, good right. question. I hope you're right. And actually, one of the things I'm going to wave my book here, if I could. <laughs> uh, one of the things is, that, we're going to do audio only, but I will I will plug okay, that book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the things I try to do in the book is to say, you know, let's look at your own history. I'm talking to to, to evangelicals here. You look back into the 19th and even in the early 20th century, evangelicals were very much involved in issues and causes that, like you're talking about, um, you know, I think most people today would understand that opposition to slavery is, you know, pre, you know probably a pretty good thing to, to, <laughs> to, to list on your resume, right? <laughs> I oppose yeah. slavery. I mean, most people would say that. Um, no, I, 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 I'm willing to acknowledge that some Southern theologians defended slavery and they right did so or tried to do so on biblical grounds. I'm not going to try to whitewash that if you'll allow me to use that word. Um, uh, the 19th century evangelicals supported women's rights, women's equality, even voting rights, which was a radical idea in the 19th century. You know, I think that's a pretty good cause that could be uh, uh, resurrected. Uh, is the reason that hasn't happened yet a lack of a push for that from the movement's leaders? Is it just a generational thing? We're waiting for new people and new blood and new causes to take a hold? Or is it something else? Because like, I don't know if the right wing, the Trump side, just basically co-opted that entire movement now. So it's yeah. it's not even possible. I don't know. I, I fear that that's the case; that it has been co-opted, uh, and 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 I do blame the leadership. I, I think, uh, you know, Franklin Gray. I actually did a, a PBS documentary about his father. I, I admired his father very much. Uh, he wasn't perfect, but not, none of us is perfect. I understand that. Uh, I think Franklin Graham has done untold damage to 
to evangelicalism, but also to the faith itself uh, in, in kind of slobbering all over uh, Donald Trump and, you know, other things. Uh, Jerry Falwell Jr., um, Tony Perkins, uh, you know, these people uh, cavorting with the Ku Klux Klan at, um, in the case of Perkins, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, these people have done untold damage. So I, you know, I guess the corollary of your question is, is there any hope? <clears throat> is there any hope that evangelicals will be able to reclaim their own history, which I consider a noble history of concern for those that Jesus called the least of these. If you look in the 19th century, they were involved in some of the issues I talked about, but also prison reform, very much in support of uh, public education known as common schools in the 19th century. Uh, Those were all the evangelical concerns that uh, would be worthy (laughs) of uh, picking up once again. Will that happen? I think if there's any hope, it does lie with the younger generation. Uh, the I, I don't I don't see any leadership uh, in the older generation that is going to to bring evangelicalists back to to their own um, to their own roots or or, or even uh, to the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear in Matthew twenty five what the application of a believer is, and uh, you know it, it it doesn't in any way resemble the agenda of the religious right. When you have spoken about your book, Bad Faith, uh, to a primarily evangelical audience, and you tell them about the history we are talking about here, do they believe you? <laughs> I don't know if they do or not. Uh, you know, again, that's one of the reasons I wrote them. I mean, I, you mentioned earlier that I did a, a political article in, in 2014, which I you know, kind of, you know, did uh, some of the arguments, uh, or at least the you know the, the the core of the argument? But one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was to be able to first of all add things that I'd found since I wrote that article. And by the way, political was told me that it was the most popular article they'd ever had published. I'm sure that's no longer true, but at one time it was. Well, I, um, I remember when it came out and it was making waves, not because those of us who followed the movement were surprised by it, but because. It, it's not often you have uh, it laid out by a historian in a way that's very blunt yeah. about what that past was. So it wouldn't surprise me yeah. uh, that it was as popular as it, it was. It was pretty popular. But, you know, yeah. I wanted to write it. And, and the other thing is that the book includes all the footnotes. And also, I mean, everybody, yeah. anybody wants to retrace my steps. Please go at it. But I can say without fear of contradiction that uh, that the, this is a movement that did not begin with opposition to abortion. It began in defense of racial segregation. So getting and back. So to do question. younger Christians, I mean, at least younger white evangelicals, are they, they more they likely do. to believe and, you? And, or? Uh, I haven't had a whole lot of audiences in part because of COVID, I'm sure, but also sure. uh, because I'm probably not on the <laughs> on the on the A-list for some of these, <laughs> these audiences. Um, so but yeah. I mean, I think once I lay it out, uh, any, you know, people who are reasonable and and not uh, ideologically uh, blinded, I'll say, and I know that ideological blindness goes on both sides of the spectrum. I understand that, but uh, they they certainly understand it. And, uh, you know, again, I think more important to me as a historian is that nobody's refuted it. I mean, it's one thing to say, I don't think you're right. Well, fine. I'm, I'm willing to listen to that. You can do that. But uh, show me where I'm wrong is another question. And uh, yeah, again, nobody's shown me that. <laughs> I'm especially curious if anyone who accepts the history of the religious right as you lay it out 
notices the parallels to what today's religious right is doing when it comes to critical race theory or black lives matter, things like that. And like, you know, you're retracing those steps. Right. And I wonder how many of those right wing Christians. Yeah. I I I think some people, you know, understand the the connection. And and again, one of the reasons I wrote the book also was to, to make that connection more explicit and to say, and, and, and this was, uh, as I said earlier, this was a way for me to understand it for myself, because on the face of it, Donald Trump. I mean, <laughs> you know, I you know, Ted Cruz is equally loathsome in my judgment uh, for various reasons. But at least there would be some logic to evangelical mm-hmm. support for for Ted Cruz or somebody like that. Uh, but uh, I, I feel like one of the lasting images of Donald Trump will always be just holding a Bible in front of a church that yeah, upside down. Didn't want him upside, <laughs> yeah, that didn't even want him there, like that he clearly hadn't read. Um, there was one interesting story you tell, um, and I don't want to give away anything here, but when we we're talking about Bob Jones University and their segregationist yeah. past, but there's a link between them and the former Supreme Court Chief Justice yeah. William Rehnquist. Yeah. Can you tell that story sure, uh, exactly. briefly? Yeah, and I and I just kind of laid it out there. I didn't want to. I didn't want to to bludgeon and readers with it, but it's 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 worth noting. Uh, so what happened? So. Um, uh, first of all, Bob Jones University, after years of warnings, loses its tax exemption status on January 19th, 1976. Well, they file suit. It goes through the courts and so forth. Finally, up to the Supreme Court in the fall of 1982. And, of course, Ronald Reagan is president by then. And initially, the Reagan administration announced that they would uh, uh, support Bob Jones in their arguments before the Supreme Court uh, that Bob Jones University should be allowed to keep both its tax exempt status as well as its racially discriminatory policies. The outcry was so great that uh, the Reagan administration backed away from that. The case went before the court without the Solicitor General arguing on behalf of uh, Bob Jones University. And the ruling was handed down on uh, in May of 1983 and it was an eight-to-one ruling against Bob Jones University. Meaning they so, cannot keep their tax-exempt right. status if they want to maintain segregation. Exactly, exactly. The sole dissenter was Associate Justice William Rehnquist, the same man Ronald Reagan elevated to Chief Justice of the Supreme Court a couple of years later. So, uh, yes, uh, and I just put that in there as sort of a postscript, and I'll let people (laughs) interpret that for themselves. (laughs) Um, I have one question. I don't mean to put you on a spot because you're a historian, and this is a story that happened this week, but I'm curious to hear your take on it. When Trump was in office, he spent several years saying, I've eliminated the Johnson Amendment, uh, which he never did. But that he was saying, if you're a pastor and you want to endorse a candidate from your pulpit, you can do it. And your tax exempt status is not going to be in jeopardy. That's what he kept claiming he did. That rule was never abolished, but the IRS has not enforced it. But last week in the Virginia gubernatorial race, Kamala Harris made a video that is now being shown in, I think I heard, 300 predominantly black churches through Virginia, encouraging people to, to, you know, souls to the polls, vote for Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, for governor. And there have been a number of atheist groups that have spoken out and said, we oppose that, too, on principle. 
Um, and again, my first take when I heard that was, I'm fine with it, mostly because if Republicans are playing that game and they're not getting punished mm-hmm. for playing politics from the pulpit, it seems to me unilateral disarmament for Democrats to say, well, we're not going to do it. That's the sure. wrong thing to do. I'm like, hey, get get every politician to walk into every progressive mainstream not evangelical church and say hey we need you vote for our side i'm just kind of curious because um when it comes to the playing the religious fight the the religious freedom argument it always seems to come from the right um and i guess the question i'm asking in a broad sense is do you think progressive christians progressive religious people should basically fight fire with fire on that front? Or do you think this is a more harmful thing everyone should get away from? Um, but realistically, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. My, my argument here is, look, if they're not enforcing the law, Democrats need to play the game. Yeah. Um, yeah. But this has been a source of argument. I don't know if you have a take on that. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Actually, the previous book, I actually published two books this this year. The, the uh, one I published in February is called Solemn Reverence. It's about the separation of church and state in American life, a very um, slim slim book as well. And uh, I I think the First Amendment is the best thing that's ever happened to America. <laughs> I mean, I think um, in, uh, Ken Burns talks about national parks as America's best idea. I think the first America's best idea is the First Amendment <laughs> and the separation of church and state. And and I'm I'm prepared to go to the wall on that one because I think it is it is actually good for a religion because it's set up a kind of free marketplace where there's a lot of competition in this marketplace. But it's also good for the state and good for the for the polity because it keeps religion out of politics. Um, for the most part. Now, have people uh, violated that? Absolutely. There's no question about that. Um, and, you know, frankly, black churches has been you know, one of the venues where that that uh, that line of separation is probably fuzzier than than, than many other other places. Mm-hmm. So uh, fire with fire. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Um, I think probably in, in the short term is that that's that's defensible. But I think uh, Keeping the larger principle of uh, separation of these two entities is probably good, again, both for the state as well as for for the faith itself. So I, I think uh, one of the one of the real grand uh, experiments in America has been the idea that you would <clears throat> construct a, a, a government, construct a society without the interlocking um, infrastructure of religion. And I think this has been a wonderful idea. It's worked very well for over 200 years, uh, which is not to say there haven't been violations here and there. That's part of the thing I, I addressed in that book. But uh, I think overall, it's a very good idea. And, and uh, you know, what you talked about with Kamala Harris, I think, you know, I, I, it, it does disturb me a little bit. I think it's, it's uh, traversing that line of separation. And if we do that, then, you know, all bets are off. And I think that's not a good idea. Fair enough. Thank you so much, Dr. Randall Balmer. The book is Bad Faith, Race and the Rise of the Religious Right. I appreciate you taking your time here. My pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thank you.